If you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones we placed around the room, their black hardback Bible, and open it up to Romans chapter 5. And if you don't own a Bible, you can actually take one of those Bibles home with you. It's a gift from, it's a gift from us to you. So uh, Romans 5, that's where we're going to be today. And as we just saw in that video, that's what we're talking about today is um, the difference between Adam and the difference between those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, um, we've been going through this book of Romans for a long time because this year is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, the Protestant Reformation was a time where some people were reading the Bible and they saw that the, the Roman Catholic teachings had a fault. And the fault was this, that they believed that grace was given to us in Jesus but you, so that you could be saved through Jesus, but you also had to earn your way to heaven through good works. And so some people started reading the Bible and they're like, that's not what the Bible says. And so then they started a reformation. They started translating the Bible into common language so lots of different people can read it. And uh, that is basically what this passage is about. It's we don't do anything to get to God. The way that we get to God is because God came to us in Jesus. And the way that Paul talks about this passage is he starts out and it's really dark in the beginning. And it makes me think of one of my favorite things I like to do is go camping uh, with a really clear sky. You know what I'm talking about? You go out into the middle of the wilderness and uh, the reason I like being out there at night with a really clear sky is because you can see all the stars. Like, it's crazy. You can see the Milky Way, you know, satellites, all that stuff. And those stars have always existed, right? But you can't see them when you're in the city because of light pollution. Uh, but what you need is you need a backdrop of darkness. You need, to, you need to be in the midst of the dark so that you can see the brilliance of the stars. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul in this text is he starts out and it's really dark in the beginning. But he gives us that dark backdrop so that we can see the brilliance and the goodness of Jesus. And so that's what this is about. He's going to start dark. Now, uh, the theologian named Tom Schreiner says that this passage is a passage about the two most important human figures in history. Two most important human figures in history, Adam and Jesus. Okay? Um, Tony Marita, a great preacher, says that this story is about the story, it's the tale of, of two Adams. It's the tale of two Adams. And so it's about these two important historical figures. So Adam was a historical figure. He was the first human created by God. And God, it says, made Adam in his likeness and his own image. And he gave Adam dominion over the world and all that was in it. And so what that means for us is that Adam is the first king of humanity. He's not just a dude. He's the first king of humanity. Uh, as Pastor Nathan said in that video, he is the federal head of humanity. He's, he's the representative of all humanity. And in making Adam king and making Adam in God's likeness, God intended Adam to be his representative of God's goodness, God's love, God's kindness, God's nature, God's justice, all of that. He was supposed to be the representative of God here on this earth. And he's the first king. But he screwed up. It took him like two pages in the Bible. And he screwed up. So we have a need for another Adam. A better Adam. And that better Adam is Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus also was in the image of God, though not made. He was, he cre- as creator, he took on flesh on himself. And he's not just an image bearer of God, he's God in the flesh. And he proclaimed himself not just to be some guy or good teacher or good prophet. He proclaimed himself to be the king of kings. So this passage really is a story of two kings. It's a tale of two Adams. And the big idea is this, is Paul is writing to a Roman church. And in the Roman church, there was these religious people who were always saying that people in their church needed behavior change. They needed a new way of living. And then there was a bunch of Greek people who were not necessarily religious, but they were into philosophy. And they were saying, what you need is new philosophies, new ways of thinking. And the Apostle Paul is basically saying in this section, you don't need a new way of living. You don't need a new way of thinking. You need a new humanity altogether. We need a new humanity. Okay, so we're going to break it up into two sections. Number one, the problem with humanity. And number two, the hope for humanity. The problem is Adam. Let's look at verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's break that down. So Paul says, sin came into the world through one man. Now, sin is the condition of our hearts by which we say to God, God, you're not the king of my life, I am. That's what sin is. Uh, D.A. Carson calls sin the dethroning of God. You want to know what sin starts with? It starts with the dethroning of God. It's saying to God, you're not the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I am. And a lot of times we don't think of it like that, but that's really what the essence of sin is. It's, It's saying to God, I'm the master of my soul. And what Paul is saying here is sin entered through one man. And he's writing it as if he knows that the audience knows what he's talking about. And what he's referring to is back in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So we're going to turn back there. As country singers like to say, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2, okay? So what I want you to do is hold your finger uh, right here in Romans 5, and then I want you to open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, which is on page 2 in the Bible, okay? So hopefully you can find it. Chapter 2. So what we see in chapter two is this. God had created uh, the whole world and what he called the world after he created every day after he created something, what do you say it was? It was good. A lot of people ask the question, they look at the chaos of our world and we say, has this world always been so chaotic? Has this world always been plagued by death? And the answer is no. When God created it, that's not how it was. Okay, so every time he created something, he said it was good. When he created humans, what did he say? They were very good, all right? And so they're very good, and God places the first humans in a garden, and that garden is on top of a mountain, okay? And we know it's on top of a mountain is because uh, there's rivers that flow from it, and rivers, I don't know if you know this, but they flow downhill, not uphill. So it was on top of a mountain, and they flow downhill. So we know that that mountain was the presence of God. It's it's called uh, the Garden of Eden, And uh, in the Garden of Eden, there was the presence of God, and it was God's paradise. And that's where he put the first humans. Wouldn't that be cool? In the Garden, there was perfect peace. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. Everything was as it ought to be, as we talked about last week. Uh, There was no strife with humans in creation. There was no strife with husband and wife. Imagine that. Not, not, Not a single argument. Not a single cold shoulder. Like, no problems going on at all. 
And there was no strife with humans and God. It was perfect. There was complete shalom. And God put in the garden a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gave them this one command in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. He said to this, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives Adam and Eve everything, and he only gives them one command. Just don't eat of this tree. Now, a lot of people say, why did he do that? Why did he say, don't eat of this one tree? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that answer. I think perhaps that up until this point, Adam and Eve only knew good. And if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would also know evil. And God didn't want them to know evil. He only wanted them to know good. He wanted them to remain in that shalom. That's what I think. But we don't know why. So we just know that after that happened, eventually the devil comes into the garden. The devil is in a form of a serpent and he starts to tempt Adam and Eve. So look at chapter three, verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's pause there. What did the devil just do? He just tempted Eve. And, and what was his tactic? The devil's tactic is always to try to get us to question God. He wants us to question God. That's what the devil tries us, to get us to do. And how did he do it? He didn't, he didn't speak a flat out lie. He, he took the truth and used mostly truth and twisted it with just one word. He said, did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And God didn't say that. He said, you just can't read of this tree. And so Eve picked up on the devil's tactics at first. And she said in verse uh, uh, three, she says, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the devil comes on again. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here we see a third approach of the devil. The third approach of the devil is that he tries to get us to think that God is holding out on us. He tries to get us to think that when we live in obedience to God, we won't be as happy as we could be if we lived in disobedience to God. And so he, he really, that's why he's called a liar and a slanderer and a de de deceiver. And the reason he's doing this is because he hates people made in his image, in God's image, because he hates God. And so John calls the devil the murderer from the beginning. And that's what he's referring to right here. And so the devil does this and look what happens in verse six. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin cloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord the God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man said to his wife, uh, or, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So this is the first sin that entered into the world. This is how it happened. So now go back to Romans, where you were holding your place, Romans 5. So we have a few questions that I think we should ask here. A lot of people say, well, what's the big deal, pastor? They just ate a piece of fruit. Who cares? <laughs> like I eat fruit all the time. Like what's the big deal that this is the thing that made death come and you know, destroy everything in our world? 
Well, the big deal is this, that it wasn't as much a matter of their action as it was a matter of their heart. In choosing not to trust God, they were choosing to take life into their own hands. They were choosing to deliberately disobey. They were choosing to join the team of the devil. They were saying to God, your ways are not enough. I need to do something on my own terms. And in doing so, as the first king and queen of humanity, they weren't just you know, sinning as you know, random people. They were declaring war against God and his kingdom. This was a declaration of a revolution. This was a declaration of war. So that's why it's such a big deal. And a lot of times guys will ask me, well, why does Adam get the blame? Eve is the one who ate it first, right? Why does Paul blame Adam? Well, first of all, it says, because Adam was with her. And as a king, he was supposed to represent God's justice and God hates evil and God is always driving away evil. He's not entertaining evil. And what does Adam do when evil is talking to his wife? He's just like, oh, cool, a talking snake. As the king, he should have driven the snake out of the garden. He should have, all snakes deserve to be stomped on the head. That's, he, should have, he should have driven the evil out of the garden. But instead, he was passive. And here's what you need to know. That passivity can be just as much a sin as activity. Choosing to not do something when you know you should is just as wrong as doing something that you know you shouldn't. And so Adam did commit the first sin because he didn't act like a good king. Secondly, the reason why Adam gets blamed for the fall of humanity is because Adam is the representative head. He's the king. And it's hard for us to understand this because we live in a democracy, but here's how it goes in kingdoms. In a kingdom, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. And so he is the king, and so when he joined in the rebellion, all of humanity falls in his wake. And God literally kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and he doomed them to death as he said he would. And as Gavin said earlier, if the garden's on a mountain, they got kicked out. They had to come down the mountain of God. It's a literal fall from the presence of God. That's why theologians call this the fall. This is where it all happens. And so in verse 12, this is why it says, because all sin. So when Adam sinned, guess what that means for you? You sinned. You're like, what? He sinned on your behalf. Thank you, Adam. Let's just give a thanks to Adam right now, right? He sinned on our behalf. He did that acting as if we were there in his shoes. That's what he did as a king. Now, what Paul does here in verse 13 is he gets a little confusing, all right? So if you ever read the Bible, anybody read the Bible, they're like, I have no idea what this is saying. It's okay sometimes when you get confused. Even the apostle Peter is like, yeah, sometimes Paul's confusing, but just stick with him, all right? So that's what we're gonna do. He, now, what Paul is doing in this passage is he's doing these if-then statements. If this is true, then this is true. And so he starts like that in verse 12. He says, just as sin came into the world, and you expect him to finish by saying, then this, but he doesn't. He goes on a tangent, on a little rabbit trail, because he's a true preacher, and he goes on this rabbit trail, and he makes another point. And that's what he does in verse 13. So it says, for sin indeed was in the world before law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, which is 2,500 years, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
So here's what Paul basically said. There was probably people in his audience who had a small view of what sin is. They didn't like the idea that all of humanity has been cursed with death. And they thought that death it should be a consequence of an individual's uh, you know, breaking, an individual's disobedience to God. Um, but Paul says, well, actually, sin existed way before the law was even given. The law was given through a guy named Moses. But for 2,500 years between Adam and Moses, sin still existed. You don't have to read very far to realize that. Sin still existed, and we know that it still existed because death still reigned. Here's basically what Paul's trying to say. Humanity has been cursed because of Adam. That sin is both a kingdom problem and a core humanity problem. First of all, it's a kingdom problem because the king declared war against God. It's considered that all those who are in his kingdom, all who are in Adam, all of who are, are human, it's, it's considered that we're at war with God. That's how, that's how kingdoms work. If a king declares war, it's considered that all the subjects of that kingdom are at war. And so Adam did this for us. He declared war on God. And because of that, death spread to all men and women. Now, some people say that death is only a consequence of individual sin, of individual action against God. And it is a consequence of that, but it's more. Because if death is only a consequence of individual sin, this is a tough question to ask, how do we explain the death of infants? And I know that that hits home because a lot of us in this room have lost infants. But you can't say it's only a cause of individual sin because that infant has done nothing wrong. It's a sick and twisted person to say that that infant has done something wrong. Well, so how is it then that that infant still dies? Well, because we're all under the judgment of Adam. Because of our king. It's a kingdom problem. Because the king sinned, it's counted as if all humanity is sinned. So that from the time you're born, you're born in sin. This is a dark picture, isn't it? Well, many people object. How dare anyone say I'm corrupted from birth based on the sins of my forefathers? How dare anyone place me under the condemnation of Adam? I'm my own person, Dagnabbit. Other people say it's not fair to say death is coming our way because it was passed down by Adam. Life's consequences should be based on individual merit and action. And that's naturally where my heart goes. And I can really see how that is appealing. But the, the stark reality is this. If we were placed in Adam's shoes, we would fare no better. We would fare no better. Um, you might make it to page three without sinning, but eventually you'd screw up. Because sin is not just a kingdom problem, it's a core of humanity problem. Um, when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, they became infected. Their hearts became infected with this rebellious attitude towards God. And so therefore, anybody who was born after them is infected with that same disease, even you and me. I was listening to the talk show Rob Anybody and Don this week, and there was a segment in it where they were talking about for like half an hour, they were talking about how the, you know, the shootings that happened a couple weeks ago, they were saying, well, this is gonna be the new normal. It doesn't matter how many laws you throw at it. It doesn't matter what, like, this is just gonna, we just gotta start getting used to it because people suck, right? And as Christians, we're like, you know what? Amen. That's true. 
Like this is in a sense, in some ways, it is a new normal because laws can't fix the human heart. People do suck. Welcome to church. This is the backdrop. This is the dark backdrop that Paul is painting for us. This is, this is the dark backdrop of what it means to be in Adam. We're in Adam. And the reason why this is important is because we don't need new laws. We need a new humanity. And if we don't know our problem, we won't know our need for a savior. If we don't know that we have a kingdom problem, we won't know our need for a king. But here's the reality. We need a king who is like us and of us, but he's not of Adam. And so how is that even possible? Well, enter in Jesus. Jesus is the king who's like us, but not of Adam. He comes and he's born of the woman, but he's also born of the Holy Spirit. His name means, Jesus' name means God saves. He came to save us from sin, not deliver us into sin. He came to save us from sin. This is why they call him Emmanuel, because he's God taken on flesh. He's God with us. And this is why Jesus, we call him Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, it's his title. And it's a title that means king from God. And this is why when Jesus was born in a manger, wise men came from the east and they gave him gifts. Why did they give a baby gifts? Well, because he's the king. The tale of two kings. So this is, in, when Jesus enters history, hope enters history because now we can have a better king, a truer and better Adam. And so this is the hope of humanity. Now the thing about kings is kings, they give gifts to their people. And that's what Paul gets into in verse 15. He says, but the free gift, so that's, when he says free gift, he's talking about the gift that's given to Christians, people who believe in Jesus, the gift of, of being declared forgiven and righteous. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's gift or sin. For the judgment following one trespass trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification so here's what uh paul is saying both adam and jesus give us gifts but their gifts are different adam gives us the gift of condemnation thank you adam he gives us the gift of sin which leads to death but jesus gives us the gift of grace which leads to righteousness and justification so they both give us gifts. Now they're different in nature, Paul says. Paul says that Adam's gift is a gift that is deserved. Jesus' gift is a gift that is undeserved. It's grace. Adam's gift is a gift that's deserved because he passed on sin to you. That's what he gave you. And then you sin. And so therefore death is deserved because death is the consequence of sin. But Jesus' gift is a gift of grace because even though you keep sinning in the line of Adam, when you become in, in Christ... He covers all your sins, all of them, even though you've had a lot of sins. So it's, it's something you don't deserve. And he says that the, that the result of this is justification. And that word justification means to be declared by God in his courtroom just as if you've never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. Imagine that. You're standing in the presence of God after you die. And it's terrifying because it will be terrifying. I mean, Jesus is not like some like, hey, welcome to heaven. I'm like, it, he is holy. Like, 
Isaiah 6 says that in the presence of God, angels have to cover their eyes and their hands and their feet. And all they can do is just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So in the presence of Jesus, we're going to come up front to his holiness. And he's going to say, why should I let you in here with me? And at that moment, we are going to be fully aware that we have done nothing in our life. There's no amount of goodness that we could have done to get in. So we're screwed. And we'll say our only hope at that moment is if we're covered by the blood of Jesus. And if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, he looks at you and says, you know what? Because of my blood that, is, that, that you have believed in and trusted your life in, you are declared just as if you've never sinned. And just as if you've always obeyed, welcome into my kingdom, my good and faithful servant. Can't you wait to hear those words? That's the beauty of it. That's what it means to be justified. So the question is, is how is it possible that we as sinners who are in Adam could be justified? And the answer, Paul says in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So when Adam sinned, it led to everybody being condemned. So one act of righteousness leads to the justification for all men. So what he's saying here is Adam's one act led everybody to be condemned. But Jesus's one act of righteousness in his life, death and resurrection leads everybody who's in Jesus to be considered righteous. And so that's why the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians calls Jesus the last Adam. There's a first Adam led to death, but the last Adam leads to life. Uh, Jesus is the truer and better Adam, isn't he? He's the truer and better substitute and representative. In politics, we elect representatives, and if they win, the whole party wins. In sports, if you get hurt and you can't be on the field anymore, a representative is chosen to be your substitute, and they go in, and if the team wins, guess what? You still get a victory ring. Like you still get the victory, it's still attributed to you. Well, in the same way, humanity has not been able to produce anybody who could do it right. So Jesus came as our representative and he lived on our behalf. And because we're in him, all who are in him are made righteous. He did the work, we get the victory. That's awesome. Now, um, it says that all are made righteous. Now, when it says all, it's not meaning every single individual. The word all is used in this sense in the fact that all who are in Adam are condemned, but only all who are in Christ are made righteous. So you have to be in Christ. That's why faith in Christ is so important. That's why if you're new to Christianity or kind of unsure, that's why Christians are telling you believe in Jesus because if you're in Christ, then and only then, can you be made righteous? Now, I just want to highlight that Paul says the word all there because he's writing to a church that is divided racially and is divided by class. And so there was Greeks and Jews and, there's, and there was tension in the church. And he's saying, look, you all are made righteous. And he would say to our church, whether you're black or white or Hispanic, you are all, if you're in Christ, made righteous. If you're poor or rich, you're all, if you're in Christ, made righteous. And so Christ not only does this for us all, he also brings us all together in him. And so it's a beautiful um, reality of what Jesus is accomplishing for us. Okay, now in verse 17, or excuse me, verse 19, it says this, for as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinner, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made 
righteous. So what's he talking about there? He's saying that in Jesus's obedience, that's how he made us righteous. Now just think about the difference of scenarios between Adam and Jesus. Adam was in paradise. He was in a garden. He had everything that he, he always wanted. And when devil came his way, he gave in to temptation. Jesus, when he's born, he's rejected by a lot of people. Uh, he's rejected by his own family sometimes. When he is doing his life in ministry, at the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the desert for 40 days and he fasts for 40 days, only drinking water. And when Jesus was at his weakest and hangriest, the devil came to him and tempted him. And when Jesus was weak, did Jesus give in? No, such a stark contrast. Adam had everything and he gave in. Jesus had nothing and he still stayed strong. Okay. Furthermore, Adam was in paradise and still couldn't keep it together. But Jesus stayed obedient even through his death on a cross. Amen. Well, while he was hanging on a cross, literally absorbing hell, Adam was in paradise and screwed up. Jesus was in hell and still stayed obedient. Absorbing the wrath of God, being crucified, you know, beard ripped out of his face, being mocked, spit upon, and the, the wrath of God was being poured out of, upon him and he still stayed obedient. We have a much better king in Jesus. He's the truer and better Adam. He's the king that we all long for. And so in verse, uh, you know, so in, uh, in verse 20, it says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, well, if all I have to do is be in Christ and then I'm good with God, what's the purpose of the laws and the commands? And he says in verse 20, the purpose of the laws is to increase sin or basically to expose the, the, the human need. The, the laws of God are given to us like a divine x-ray. So many of you know, like I hurt my arm. Uh, I didn't know my hand was broken for a couple weeks. And my wife and my mom were just like, go to the doctor, go to the Finally I did and they're like, yeah, it's broken. And I needed the x-ray to show me my brokenness. Otherwise I wouldn't have believed it. And so that's what the law does for us. It shows us our brokenness. But Paul says the law also does another thing. He says another use of the law is to show you how messed up you are so you can see how much grace is in Christ Jesus. So we should become well acquainted with the law so that we could know what Jesus is actually doing on the cross. Because there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And that's what, that's what the beauty of what Paul is saying is why we need a new humanity. We need to be in Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians,